0: So with that, let's pray. We're in Mark chapter 16 verse 1. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this, this time with each other. We thank you for our body uh, gathered here together now as we um, worship you through singing. We worship you through our giving. We worship you through uh, the studying of your word and fellowshipping with one another. Lord, over the last few months, having this, uh, this ability kind of stripped from us lord there's new appreciation for what we have and so lord we are deeply grateful uh for the ability to to gather as believers with one another uh, coming together as your church and so father i pray that you would lead us as we navigate this section of scripture and there's some difficulties and so lord i just i pray that it would be edifying to each one of us as we as we look at this Father, I do pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that you would help us. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early, very early on, the first day of the week. they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Who has been crucified? He has risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he had told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, Father, we do ask that you would guide us now, help us, and it 's in christ 's good name we pray amen all right so every um, i 've been here for thirteen years, and I feel like about every three or four years i I always have like an urge within me to cycle back to the gospels and 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 to go through a gospel to kind of come back to um, you know Jesus in the flesh it's it 's just to spend time with Jesus, I will tackle hard books and then i you know, the, I, I forget the last time. I feel like I got through the end of, of Hebrews, and it's like, okay, I'm ready just to kind of let's go back to, like, one of the Gospels. And it's good for us to spend time with Jesus in this way during his time on earth. And and so I've gone through the other Gospels, and it's no coincidence that Mark was the, the last of all the Gospels that I, that I tackled, because I knew that there was a problem that I wasn't sure how to deal with it, um, <clears throat> And so, of course, I put things off until I have to eventually deal with them. And so here we are. Pastor drinking a Coke while he's preaching. So that's the the churches these days, you know. (laughs) Um, uh, So when we come to this section, depending on the translation of the Bible that you use. So I don't want to even do a poll. Some of your translations might end at verse 8 depending on what version you're using. Some of your translations might continue down to verse 20. All of your translations, regardless of how they conclude, all of them will have a a footnote indicating, um, so if if your translation ends at verse 8, you'll have a footnote. And then down down in the bottom or on the side or however your Bible is laid out, there, they would place verses 9 through 20 and they would write something along the line of the earlier and more reliable manuscripts don't include these verses, which leads to a problem. It, 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 it depends on, this, this problem goes two ways. Um, some, so I'm a guy that came to, I read out the New American Standard. Um, the text is in the New American Standard. It's bracketed to indicate there's, there's a question. I, um, I came to Christ reading out of the NIV, and it wasn't long after I came to Christ after a couple years starting to hang with Christians who can be sort of mean in their teasing, especially if you're not in their camp, and then you hear, what do you hear about the NIV? The nearly inspired version. And I'm like, what do you, that's what it's really, like, like I remember the first time I heard that, I'm going to the front, and I'm like, of my kids scribbling the Bible, I'm like, no, it's the new international version. I don't know this nearly inspired version you're talking about. And it's a joke, and it's, then, I, then, you know, I take a couple years of Greek and Hebrew, and I'm like, that's not to be joking with. These guys, like all, like the men and women who put together the text, like these are brains. Then on the other side, you hear people kind of say, well, I read out of the King James version, because if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for me, you know, it's a, just for those of you who are like me. That's a joke because the King James Version didn't come about until 1611, and and the the King James Version, um, it, it's a uh, I'm not sure the word that that I'm looking for, but it, but it, the 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 King James Version was a powerful translation during its day, like. The, the King James version, if we were to move it to, to modern day translations, it would actually be like the NIV or more likely like the New Living Translation. It was, it was put in a language that was of the people that they understood. Now, like, we need dictionaries to, to kind of understand the King James talk. Now, the King James came about in 1611. Um, the, the deal between verses eight and nine, and we've addressed this in this church. But when it comes up, I'll make light note of it. And what we enter into when we deal with the scriptures, and we come upon these things, what we enter into is a subject called textual criticism. And it's it's really easy uh, to hear that and to go, "Oh, these are skeptics; these are liberals that are trying to dis, disarm." the bible and they're trying to take away the authority of the bible that's that they couldn't be farther from the truth textual criticism has to do with ancient literature it's a a study and um, to kind of illustrate it when i was in the navy um, we've all played the telephone game right or at least you've done it to your kids The telephone game you say one thing it gets passed on when i was in hell week so it was three days of no sleep and miserable at 2 in the morning on Wednesday night, I think it was, they lined up our whole BUDS class, and they said, hey, um, we have a race. And the winner of the race gets to sleep for 30 minutes. So we're like, yes, okay, like, what is this race? And then the instructors, as they pull us all around, I think we were down to like four or five boat crews, so you time by, times out by seven people, so there's about like 30 of us. And they say, it's speed is an element of it, but accuracy is a component that is most important it 's like that 's how, how do you pull this off? like what are you talking about and they say well we 're going to play the telephone game, so we 're going to divide your boat crews up and we 're going to put the two vehicles a hundred yards apart so it 's two in the so I remember it was two in the morning. this is december of ninety four It was the coldest, the coldest buds class ever is what I always say because that 's what every seal says is they went through the hardest one and and I remember being able to stand next to the window, talking to the instructor, and just feeling the heat come out of the the, the the window. And so they took so if there's say there's five boat crews, they took five guys that were the first part of the relay team, and then the next guy would be a hundred yards away, then the third guy would be back at the start, and then the fourth guy, the fifth guy, and so um, so I was the first guy, and I'm like I'm not, I'm a slow runner, but I think I got a good memory. And so I think I'm going to focus on remembering. Like that. I remember, this was my strategy because you're delirious. You don't know what's going on. And so I go up to the window. There were four other guys. And the instructor's like, OK, you guys ready? This is what you have to pass on. If Milton Bradley owned Junior Mints, would they be Milton Bradley's or Junior? No, no, no. I messed up already. See? <laughs> I got it through four, sir. OK. If Milton Bradley owned Junior Mints, would they be Milton Juniors or Bradley Mints? You're going to say it again? He's like, "Uh uh-uh. And so then we take off down the beach. So then you're like, okay, now speed now suddenly, because nobody's going to get this. I know that by the time I got to the other end, I said something about Milton Bradley and Junior Mints. And by the time you get all the guys, I have no idea what the instructors heard. All I know is that my boat crew didn't win, and we had to go to the surf. So I, we spent the 30 minutes laying in the ocean. And, and uh, the reason I bring this up is sort of this, this. So this is kind of how we got the New Testament, it's kind of like the telephone game. So Mark, eventually, Mark originally wrote out, a, wrote, out, wrote out his testimony, which was likely, it's believed to be, Peter's account of the gospel. So he writes it out into a document. He has, he has his notes. He goes and he delivers it to whoever he delivered it to. We don't know who Mark delivered it to. Then it would have arrived in that location, and there would have been people there, and then they would have made copies of it, and then they would have gone to the other churches, and then this would go on indefinitely. Then today we don't have the original writings, which I think that this is a part of God's grace and blessing that we don't. Because I think that these things would be in a, like a relic somewhere that somebody would be charging people millions and millions of dollars in profit. And, and so what we have instead is this beautiful form of preserving the New Testament. Um, so Matthew through Revelation, we, th- there are literally hundreds of thousands of manuscripts, uh, partial manuscripts, whole manuscripts, like all around the world in museums and, these scholarly guys, they guys and gals, examine all of the fragments and all of the pieces, and they sort of examine the various dating and ages, and through that, they can isolate with certainty like what, what the text is. And it's beautiful because Gunner can't... Like, like Let's say that I wanted to kind of manipulate the text like skeptics say. All the time we hear it, we say, the Bible, you can't trust it. So if that was true, and if I wanted to insert something in the Bible that wanted to kind of benefit me, I would you know, get my little piece of paper, and I'd write something, and, and I'd, I'd have to go to a Greek dictionary to remember out how to spell out, Gunnar Hansen is going to be one of the most awesome people in the whole wide world. You should do all sorts of cool stuff for him. I take my piece of paper, I run it through the washing machine a couple of times, I scrunch it up, I burn the edges, I run it through the dirt. I sneak out to Egypt somewhere, and I dig a hole in the middle of the sand as deep as I can go. Then I cover it all up, and then like seven years later, I, I say, hey, I, I hear that there's some, some manuscripts over there. So the archaeologists go, and they pull up this piece of paper, and they go, oh, there's going to be some guy named Gunnar Hansen in 2020. Hey, we're in 2020. Let's go find this guy. But then they pull this up, and then they start looking at the hundreds of thousand documents, and do you know how many times you're going to find that in any of the documents out there anywhere? Now, it 's nowhere so so the way the New Testament came to us it 's impossible to, corrupt, to to corrupt it, um, and so when we come to the Bible, what we 're looking for is we want to know what did Mark say. So often we want to defend a, a particular translation um, that we 're comfortable with. Um, when I was in seminary, my Greek professor he made us listen to an interview by uh, a guy named James White who wrote the King James Only Controversy. And he said something in there that was, made a huge impact on me. And he said what people often want in, in the King James Only movement is they want certainty, not truth. And, and so they'll deny all the facts. They'll say... Uh, you know these these critics. They just want to manipulate the word of God. We can know with certainty that the Bible we have. Just ignore all the footnotes, and it's like, well, that's not truth. That's not how we 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 came to the text. And so the reason I bring this up is when we come to the text, the first thing that we know as Christians who believe the word of God is the word of God is the integrity of Christian scholarship is second to none. I mean, it's amazing the work that these individuals do. They very easily could hide all of these, the quote-unquote inconsistencies and problems that skeptics talk about. But before your eyes in the Bibles that you read out of, these scholars have placed before you every single little dot and detail that might be out of place. Um, I thought it would be worth our while for me to, to bring in a guy, uh, a scholar, um, Dr. Daniel Wallace. He's, like the, he's one of the leading greek Grammarians in, in the whole world. He's head of Dallas Theological Seminary. Any Greek book that I read, um, he, he, like uh, dealing with this, he, he wrote about it, and he's here with us to share three minutes about it. So, so, Daniel, would you please share with us?
1: We don't have the original manuscripts of the New Testament. They, were, they all disappeared within a century, I'm pretty convinced, by copying and copying and copying. Frequent handling, the early church was far more concerned to get the gospel out than they were to do exact copying of the New Testament. And that actually is a blessing because they didn't have those kinds of controls. And consequently, you get copies that are not through just one stream, but tons of people all over the place are making these copies. So here's, here's a man who lives in Corinth. He's going to be visiting Rome, and he says, Hey, I, I heard Paul Paul wrote a letter to you guys, too. I want to write that out. Do you mind if I copy one and get there? Sure, that's no problem. This happened, I'm sure, dozens and dozens of times over. And those manuscripts would have lasted as much as 80, 90 years, but would have fallen apart from all these copies being made. So we don't have the originals. They disappeared. And all the copies that we have disagree with each other at some point. Sometimes it's quite a few disagreements, But uh, we have hundreds of thousands of texture variants among our manuscripts. So, a question to ask here is, how badly did the scribes corrupt the New Testament? It's absolutely proven that they did. No two manuscripts are alike, so unless one of them is pristine, every single scribe made mistakes. So because the original manuscripts disappeared, and because no two copies uh, agree with each other completely, we have to do texture criticism. We can't just rely on one, it's imperfect. So scholars have to reconstruct it on that basis. But when you look at the number of textual variants, and there's hundreds of thousands of them, as Bart Ehrman likes to say, there are more textual variants than there are words in the original Old Testament. That's actually an understatement. But you have to not just look at the number of variants. You have to look at the nature of these variants. And the best estimates are that at least at least 99.8% of them affect nothing. Most are spelling differences. There's different ways to spell John. There's different ways to spell Mary. uh, uh, They're not going to affect anything. Uh, But the the one-fifth of one percent that do affect things are the ones that scholars talk about and disagree over on a number of these issues. But the bottom line is, it does not matter in some respects which New Testament you use because no essential doctrine is jeopardized by any of these textual variants. Even Bart Ehrman, who wrote Misquoting Jesus, can say the same thing. So that's true on that end. But at the same time, we want to know what the original text said in all the details. And so the great majority of scholars have very few disagreements over uh, these passages. For example, most scholars would say the long ending of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, 9 through 20, is almost surely not authentic. And they still put in their Bibles, typically smaller print or in brackets or footnote. The oldest authorities don't have this. Uh, so there, there's a, a wide consensus on the vast majority of textual variants. And again, there's no essential doctrine that's jeopardized by any of these textual variants. That is extremely comforting. It's very important to know that.
0: Okay. I hope this was edifying to you. I, this is a very extended uh, Sort of introduction to where we're going. I I feel though it's super important because we live in a day and age where the Bible is under attack, and they're saying it's contaminated. It's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. These 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 scholars, the the, the people who have given their lives. I mean, going back, um, these these people that burned at the stake to get the Bible into the hands of people, so that we have. Um, translations that are reliable. The, the, the integrity behind Christian scholars is trustworthy. They lay it all out for you and how they reach their conclusions to go 2,000 years back from one language to another language. Languages morph and change. We see that from the King James to the New Living Translation. To they're, they're, they're constantly sort of evolving as language changes. So that. The message of, of, of the Lord can get to us. And so I'll, if you guys want to learn more, you can go read the King James only controversy. You'll be encouraged there. But, but, but what I, the reason for all of this is the scriptures that we have in our hands. You can trust that they are God breathed. This is the word of God. I've, I've, I trust my life and how I live my life according to the scriptures. I trust my soul. Everything I do is based upon the word of God, or that's my aim. I'm not saying that I'm perfect by any stretch of the means, but, but my standard is the word of God, and it's trustworthy. And so with that very long introduction, let's go to verse 1. Um, verse 1 of, of Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come anoint him. Very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So our story is sort of, remember, Jesus had been crucified. Uh, uh, James, or J- James um, Joseph of Arimathea came to a pilot and said, can I take his body? He said, yeah, you can take the body. He pulled the, he pulled the body down. He anointed Jesus's body. He put, placed Jesus's body and his uh, family's tomb which would have been a very wealthy uh a, a tomb and a few days has elapsed and there was nothing that these women could do um, it, it always strikes me that these women are there the disciples had scattered but these women and the disciples who followed Jesus they 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 were there with him at his, at the cross they're the first ones there at the tomb and so when the Sabbath ended, they then are able to go to the tomb. They're then able to um, to do the things that they want to do in, in mourning. And so probably the at sunset on Saturday, uh, once the sun set in Jerusalem, in Israel today, at that time on Saturday night, basically um, the stores will start to open up and, and people will start doing their commerce. And so likely... Um, Saturday night, they went and bought the, the supply of these spices. We don't know if they had all of the spices. We know that he had been partially prepared by Joseph Arimathea. Uh, tr- traditionally, it would be about 75 pounds of, of, of material that they would bring in um, for this process. For us Valley Center people, that equates to about two bags of chicken feed. So uh, just so you know what we're dealing with... Um, so, I mean, this is like a big load of stuff. I mean, they, they didn't have refrigeration. They had to bury the body quickly. This is in the Middle East. And so the decomposition process, it was not a, a pleasant smell. And so all of these spices were used to sort of mask the odor that would have been there. And so they uh, wake up. First thing in the morning, we're told that the sun had risen, S-U-N, to discover that the sun, S-O-N, had risen. And so they, they make their way to the tomb. And I, I truly believe that this act on their part, I, I don't think that this was the, the, the true anointing um, that Joseph of Arimathea did. I, I sense this as like you have a loved one who died, and you go to their grave Every year, every Memorial Day, I take my family to visit my friends that have been killed at Rosecrans. And every year, I go there and I visit buddies. I tell the stories, and there's always flowers. There's always like an American flag. Some guys, just depending on who they ran with, you know. Sometimes there's empty bottles of whatever at their grave. You know, what? That uh, we have our traditions of how we pay our respects. And I've never been out for a holiday to have somebody in my group basically taken into custody, had a speedy trial, and then executed before my eyes. I can only imagine what these three days were for those that followed Jesus. We know the disciples are scattered there in hiding; they're fearful. Here, these ladies are, are are just wrecked with emotion. If you look at the other accounts, this this is deep, deep grief. And so they're making their way to the tomb, In verse 3, uh, they're carrying all their spices, and they have this conversation. They're saying to one another, uh, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they have, like, I'm, I'm thinking, of course, I'm Valley Center, so I'm imagining like two bags of chicken feed, like one of them's got one, and the other's got the other, and it's daybreak, and they're like, oh man, there's that 2,000-pound rock in front of the stone. Who's going who's gonna to get that open for us? The, the first thing to point out, were they expecting a body or a resurrection? They were expecting a body. They, Jesus, we can look through the account of Mark and their aha moment in hindsight that Jesus had told them three or four times, when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to take me into custody, they're going to they're beat me, they're going to kill me, and on the third day, I'm going <coughs> to rise from the dead. But, but naturally, they did not... Get that because people don't rise from the dead. And so they're going there expecting a dead body. They're they're going there to anoint the body, and they're having this like, oh, the stone. Maybe there'll be somebody there that can help us. I mean, this is like a 2,000 pound stone. This isn't like a little stone. And as they're talking about this, verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And I. Like I, I just in compiling all of this, the accounts in my mind of how this all unfolded, um, I, I don't think that there was fear at, at this point. I think that they thought, "Oh, somebody else is, somebody's already come, like somebody else is, is coming to mourn Jesus, somebody else <laughs> is here doing the same thing that we're coming to do entering the tomb, the, at that point, there's no fear. If we follow this story out and we go to John's account, which is the one I really love, John's account of this whole thing, because the women come, John and Peter get the news, they take off in a foot race, John lets everybody know that he beat Peter getting there. But then he's afraid to go in, because he's this young whippersnapper, he's like, God, dead body raised, I don't know. And then Peter finally gets there, and he just goes straight into the tomb. But these ladies are just going in. And so a tomb in Israel, the way, like, during this time, the way it would work, I'm, like think of a little room. Like we have the sound booth where the Arnolds are back there. So let's imagine that that's a tomb and you could walk into the room back there and to the right and to the left, there would be like little sub compartments and there would be a big stone that would block them in. And so you would go into the one compartment and that's where visitors would be. And then the body of the dead person would be over to the right. There'd be one to the right. In Jesus's case, we see this over to the right. Um, In Israel today, when you go to the garden tomb, if this happened, we don't know if it's the same location. We don't, we don't know. But we do know that what they discovered was authentic to that era and that time. And so the garden tomb, when you walk into it and you look sort of to the right, you have to kind of hunch down, and and that's where the body would be. They would do all the preserving of the body. and And so they go in. They enter the tomb. They see a young man sitting at the right, Other accounts say that there were two of these men there, two of these angels. There's no problem with this. One was a spokesperson. And when they encountered this young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, they were amazed. Mark doesn't give all of the details, but we know that this is an angelic being, that they're having this uh, divine sort of encounter, and, and there's fear. This word amazed can be defined as being overwhelmed with wonder. Is probably an understatement. But like, what's going on? Jesus was just crucified. He's not here. I can see the the evidence of of like him being here, and you're sitting here. Like all of the questions. Again, in John's account, in this encounter, I think if I didn't really read it before I came here, but I remember when I was like, I'm not in the mood for these games. Like, if you've moved the body, just tell me where he is. Like this isn't this isn't the time for like any sort of jokes. Just let me know what you've done with him. And so there's this like. Like, where's Jesus? Like, imagine going to your loved one's grave to find a big hole. Like, you would be ticked off. Scared. Like, what have they done to my loved one? And he said to them, don't be amazed, for you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. Like, yeah, 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 we know that. Like, but, but where is he at? If you visit the tomb, at uh, the garden tomb in Israel today, this is, these are the six words that you'll see on the outside of the tomb on a little wooden plaque, and it says, he is risen, he is not here. And it cracks me up that one of the world's most visited locations for people to go see, what are they going to see? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> like, you go a mile away, there's, a, there's Jewish men that are over another casket that are going 24-7 like this, and they say, this is King David's like, casket. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know, but that's what they claim. And there's bodies, but a mile away, there's this empty tomb that the world descends upon to, to walk and to see the tomb that maybe have been Jesus' tomb. The problem is he rose from the grave, so we don't know where he's located. He is risen, he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. They give, they're given their marching orders. Go get the disciples. Go let them know what has happened. He'll meet him there. And, and so we see in verse 8, they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And if, if this is the end of, of Mark, It just kind of like you're going along, you're enjoying the story, and it's like you come to the cliff. And it's like, what happened? I, um, I remember a few years ago, I'm not a voracious reader. Like, I'm forced to read for what I have to do. It's, reading is not something, you know, the the movies are always better. You know, I'm trying to get something thrown at me by my wife to say, she's a voracious reader. So basically, one out of every hundred books, she'll say, here's one you need to read. And it's like, yes, ma'am, I'll read that one. And like, oh, that was really good. Um, but a few years ago, I was reading a book on, um, on, on Mormon, on the Mormon church and the history. And it's a fabulous book. It's one of my, it's one of my favorites. And it's called One Nation Under Gods. It's written by, um, a descendant of Joseph Smith, who's now an evangelical Christian. And he goes through historically, like everything that happened. And, and I was like reading through the book. And then all of a sudden, like one day, it's like the end. And I'm like, what? The end? There's still, there's still 300 more pages to go. I was like, it's like a 600-page book. And I got to like 350, and the book was over. And the whole rest of the book was like appendices like of, of stuff to document all of the stuff that he'd, all the claims that he'd made along the way. And it's like a book that I always, like people say, oh, do you have any good book on the Mormon church? I'm like, I got one book. I'll, I'll share it with you. And then they see like, whoa, that looks like an 800-page book. I'm like, don't worry. It's only like 300 pages. The rest is there. And, and it's like it just, like if verse 8, and I think that there's evidence. I don't want to make a big, like I, like I think that there's like a, uh, you're, you're just stopping with that these ladies left the tomb with trembling and astonishment, had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's like, well, where's the story go? What's the next thing? Like what? And we know from the other gospels, we see how the story goes. They eventually, they, eventually, they do go and they let everybody know. And the whole early church unfolds in the, in the book of Acts. And so there's a ton of speculation over why does Mark end this way if this is the ending? And so some of those that are more in the King James Version that that want to hold to the, the other manuscripts, and I'm not, being, I'm not being critical, I'm just like acknowledging sort of all the sides, they would say that it can't end there. No, nobody would end a story like this. And and I and I do think, regardless, there's not problems between nine and twenty. I I, I think that that probably within a hundred years, regardless, I, I think that there's truth in there. There's no real issue. Is that probably scribes that were trying to comment on the situation probably did sort of add to it? If that's if it indeed is not, not the ending those who hold to the shorter ending what they would say is that the whole gospel of mark has this theme of persecution in it because mark was his disciple of peter and if you follow peter's writings in first and second peter dealing with persecution there's this theme of persecution throughout mark that he follows And so they have speculated that this gospel was written in duress, like that Peter was there relaying to Mark the things that had happened, and they're trying to go quickly, and they sort of suggest that basically something could have happened, that it stopped shorter than they anticipated, or maybe it was intentional. I don't know. The New American Commentary says this, which they hold to this short ending, and they think that this was um, intentional. And I like what they wrote. So what they say is Mark had a definite purpose in his ending. He apparently wanted an open ending to indicate the story was not complete but was continuing beyond the time he wrote. He wanted his readers and hearers to continue the story in their own lives by stating that the women told no one. He challenged his readers and hearers to assume the responsibility of telling the good news to everyone he showed that ultimately the Christian faith does not rest upon signs and miracles and even appearances of the risen Lord. Only 5 or 600 persons according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 ever saw Jesus after his resurrection, and it is unlikely that any of Mark's original readers or hearers were among these. It's, it's compelling. And I think that there's a there's there's There is some power in Mark ending with this risen Christ, like Jesus rose from the grave. If you strip away everything of Christianity, the one thing you can't take away is the risen Christ. This is the jugular vein of Christianity. This is the thing that has to grip us, has to stop us in our tracks, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. So if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we're wasting our time here. We should be at the beach, Just be drinking a soda at the beach, you know. There's so many, better, many more things that you can be doing with your life on a weekend if Christ didn't raise from the, the grave. But Paul goes on to say, but Christ did raise from the dead. He it changed the world. Because he raised from the dead, he conquered death. And at the end of chapter 15, Paul would say, where are you, O sting of death? Like The, the sting of death has been conquered in Christ. And this is the thing that each of us have to face we have to deal with, did Jesus raise from the dead? And I believe that there's overwhelming evidence that he, in fact, did. And I actually, like, as I look at the Gospel of Mark, and as we stop at verse 8, and as I've been, like, fearing the whole 8, and, like, grappling with the scriptures that we have before us, are these authentic? Are these reliable? As you dig into textual criticism, as you dig into the authenticity and reliability of the scriptures that we have in our hands the evidence is overwhelming like there's more evidence uh, uh, concerning the person of christ than there is george washington i think they said george washington of like original sources is a very small amount for jesus it would fill this this building like 10 times of like sources original to like the time of writing it's overwhelming that's the whole case for christ book and so when we come to the scriptures and we look at these testimonies of these individuals who gave their life and died testifying to the truth of the risen Christ it says something to me. We can never strip away faith. God requires us to have faith in what he has done on our behalf. It's it's how he does it's just how he works. And so as we end Mark, and as I've like studied, again, the integrity of Christian scholarship with the words before us, it's, it's overwhelming. In my study, I, I came across a story. We all know the Lord's Prayer, or not the Lord's Prayer, the, the prayer we prayed when we were little kids, or maybe I just did. Um, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep Or take, keep, yeah, I got it right. If I, before I wake, okay. There we go, good job, class. But the story goes that this little girl was praying this prayer with her dad and when she got to the part, if I die before I sleep, she said, if I wake before I die. And at that moment, she popped her eyes open and was like, daddy, daddy, no, I got it wrong. And the story goes that her daddy says, no, honey, we all need to wake up before we die. And I think that that's the power of the gospel. Before we die, we need to wake up and understand the reality of what Christ did in this grave. He rose from the grave. And if you come to understand that he rose from the grave, your whole life will be transformed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you again for this time that we have to gather with one another to worship you through singing, through our fellowship with one another, through the studying of your word. Lord, we pray that you would grow in us a deep, deep love for you, grow in us a passion for studying the words that you have given us, uh, that have revealed to us uh, who you are, your nature, your character, the things that you desire from us. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our faith of understanding the power of the resurrected Christ. We thank you that by your grace, we are saved. And so, Father, we just love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name.
1: Amen. Amen.